To have Tom Slay and Nikki Finney read from their superlative work this afternoon is an extremely vibrant way to welcome cherry blossom season and the sweetness and sadness of spring. You must forgive my mournful opening tone, but poets can do that to me. They can also turn that mournfulness into a kind of quiet joy in the flick of a line, while inspiring a host of other feelings too. Feelings that I'm loath to share in such august company because I'm very greedy about poets. There are so few of them, relatively speaking, and those who devote their souls to the enterprise live enviable lives. True poets are spiritually disciplined in ways that the rest of us analytical slobs can only look at with a kind of wonder. To fit lines of experience into Villanelle or Sestina requires a patience and freedom that would land many of us in a psychiatric facility. But poets, for the most part, are not crazy. They're just poets, and the madness is in the form. Tom Slay, our first reader this afternoon, is a great practitioner of the form because he is that very rare thing, a poet who can make us laugh as he makes us think. Take these lines from his lovely poem, Airport Economy Inn. Out in the hall, someone's pounding on the ice machine, one hand beating rhythm to fuck it, fuck it, fuck it. Reveries of living here year after year, scalloped walls, cottage cheese ceiling, plaster hands praying on the checkout counter, complimentary donuts hoarded in the ice bucket. There, as elsewhere, Slay illustrates what alienation looks like to the eye and the soul. In some of his work, he walks a delicate line between the truly heartbreaking and the ridiculous and the possible. Besides publishing his poems in magazines ranging from the Yale Review to the New Yorker, Slay has published eight books of poetry, a book of essays, and a translation of Euripides' Hercules. During that time, these institutions have given him money, which I wish we'd give poets more of. The Guggenheim Foundation, the Lila Wallace Fund, and the National Endowment for the Arts. He presently teaches in the Graduate Creative Writing Program at Hunter College, and I would study with him in five minutes if, we, if he would have me. Ladies and gentlemen, Tom Slay. Thank you. Thank you very, very much for that kind of introduction. I want to thank uh, Carol, and I want to thank Jane. Uh, thank you so much for uh, everything you've done. And I'll read. You know, I think I'll read that poem that Hilton mentioned uh, towards the end there. I think I'll start with an older poem. When I was a boy, my mother and father had a drive-in movie theater. And so I went to the movies every night. And this was during the Cold War. Uh, and one of the things about the Cold War and the kind of movies that were made during that time, they had the grade B science fiction movies which were kind of a response to paranoia about being invaded by, obviously, the Soviet Union, which existed. But they always took the form of uh, desert atolls having been, oh, you know, uh, contaminated by uh, radiation and fallout from the atomic bomb. And so all the flora and the fauna on the islands were of immense size. There was one, my favorite, was of uh, the crabs uh, that grew to the size of boxcars and then would mad scientists would be walking by and then a crab would dash out and eat the mad scientist and then another mad scientist would come by. The crab would have gone back into the cave meanwhile and then 
Crabbe would dash out again, but this time he would talk in the voice of the mad scientist he'd just <laughs> eaten. <laughs> so anyway. Uh, I'm just, I'll, I'll, you know, the, 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 the thing about the poem is, is we had an old green Plymouth. Uh, my twin brother slept here. I slept there, and my older brother slept on the, on the seat underneath us. And at one point, I had to go to the bathroom, and I got lost in the parking lot because the film broke. Newsreel. It was like being in the crosshairs of a magnifying glass, or the beams of the planets concentrating in a death ray, passing right through me, boring a hole between my shoes through the concrete floor all the way to the far side of the earth. Yet it was only not knowing how to get where I was going. I'd gotten lost in the parking lot on the way to the cinder block bunker where my mother worked the snack bar, my father the projector. The drive-in movie screen stretched horizon to horizon. The whole of Texas sprawled around. Cathedral-like DeSotos and great finned Pontiacs flickering and sinister in torrents of light flooding down the screen. Frozen in that light, I might have been the disconsolate, ageless, stone-eyed child ornamenting a pillar in a dead Roman city high up on a desert plateau. I wasn't even as tall as the speakers mumbling on and on the way now, in my dream of extreme old age, I hear voices mumbling interminably. Where does it shimmer, my refuge, grotto of my swimming pool, lapping in the infinite leisure of the newsreel? At last, my mother appeared from among the cars and led me back to the snack bar, but I still hovered out there, turned loose among the shadows, disembodied passions, striving for mastery above the tensed windshields. There gleams Marilyn Monroe, movie star, enjoying her fame in the voluptuous, eternal, present tense of celebrity, being worked over by hands of her masseur. Bougainvillea overgrows her beach bungalow retreat of peace and pleasure. The screen, nothing now, but layer on layer of flesh the fingers knead in a delirious ballet, pushing, pulling, palms slippery and quick, ambiguous instruments of comfort or of pain. The rush of blood to her face clouds into white light as film stock jerks across a void, half-coma blackout, half-nightmare aura. The film jammed, raw light pulsing like a bandage on a face wrapped round and round in surgical gauze. Wherever that light took me looms far from candy bars and gum wrappers blazing under glass. The movie poster Death Ray stopped the earth revolving. Time had stopped. My mother's black slacks and my father's not-yet-grown goatee, my own hands shaking nervously about, were silently dissolving in that ray bombarding from beyond the galaxy, being invaded by screeching, beseeching noises of alien beings searching for a planetary home. Then, up there, on the screen, 
frenetic in the light was a hare, trembling between two cloven lobes of shadow that were part of the projector's overheating brain, its brilliantly babbling, delusional, possessed by shadows, dispossessed brain. Almost called Space Station. I'll just follow on with the science fiction motif. And in the poem, I imagine my mother's kitchen is a space station. Maybe not science fiction, if you've been to my mother's kitchen. My mother loves dogs. I like dogs. But dogs are strange creatures, particularly when you lock gazes with them look at you and you look at them and you think, I have no idea what you're thinking. Anyway, uh, space stations create gravity by revolving and this poem takes place when the space station reverses and everything floats in the air. My mother and I and the dog were floating weightless in the kitchen. Silverware hovered above the table. Napkins drifted just below the ceiling. The dead who had been crushed by gravity were free to move about the room, to take their place at supper, lift a fork, knife, spoon. A spoon, knife, fork that, outside this moment's weightlessness, would have been immovable as mountains. My mother and I and the dog we're orbiting in the void that follows after happiness of an intimate gesture, her hand stroking the dog's head and the dog looking up, expectant, into her eyes. The beast gaze, so direct and alienly concerned to have its stare returned. The human gaze that forgets for a moment that it sees what it's seeing and simply fervently sees but only for a moment. Only for a moment were my mother and the dog looking at each other, not mother or dog, but that look. I couldn't help but think, if only I were a dog, or a mother was, then that intimate gesture, this happiness passing, could last forever. Such a hopeful, hopeless wish I was wishing. I knew it and didn't know it, just as my mother knew she was my mother and didn't. And as for the dog, her large black pupils, fixed on my mother's faintly smiling face, seemed to contain a drop of the void we were all suspended in. Though only a dog who chews a ragged rawhide chew toy shaped into a bone, femur or cannon bone, of the heavy body that we no longer labored to lift against the miles-deep air, pressing us to our chairs. The dog pricked her ears, sensing a dead one approaching. Crossing the kitchen, my father was moving with the clumsy gestures of a man in a spacesuit. The strangeness of death moving among the living though the world was floating with a lightness that made us feel we were phantoms. I don't know if my mother saw him. He didn't look at her 
when he too put his hand on the dog's head, and the dog turned its eyes from her stare to his. And then the moment on its axis reversed, the kitchen spun us the other way round and pressed heavy hands down on our shoulders so that my father sank into the carpet. My mother rested her chin on her hand and let her other hand slide off the dog's head. Her knuckles bent in a kind of torment of moonscape erosion, ridging up into peaks giving way to seamed plains with names like the Sea of Tranquility. Though nothing but a metaphor for how I saw her hand, her empty, still strong hand dangling all alone in the infinite space between the carpet and the neon-lit ceiling. I'll read a cat poem now. Um, just quickly, I, I've been doing some uh, journalism in the last few years, and I went to um, uh, Lebanon and Syria uh, in 2007 to do an article about uh, Palestinian refugees uh, in the aftermath of the war between uh, Lebanon and Israel. And um, I had to go to a command post, a CP post, and, uh, and there was a yard full of tanks, and then there was a cemetery, a Christian cemetery, and then there was a sea, and as I was walking in to get my permission to go further south where the fighting had taken place uh, on the tanks, and they're small tanks, they're not big American tanks, they're small tanks, about the size of a horse and cart, in fact. Um, I saw lots of shadows moving, and I thought I was having heat stroke because I was tired and there was a lot of sun. And I realized they were cats, hundreds of them, just. Anyway, the Egyptians have a cat goddess named Bast, who's also called Lady of Flame, Eye of Ra. And then there's an ancient historian um, who put together a book of military strategies including ones by what he called barbarians. Of course, he was a Roman who put it together. <laughs> Poems in three parts, army cats. Over by the cemetery, next to the CP, you could see them in wild cat mint going crazy. I watched them roll and wriggle, pot, lick it, chew it, leap about, pink tongues stuck out, drooling, Cats in the tank squat shadows lounging, or sleeping curled up under gun turrets. Hundreds of them sniffing or licking long hind legs stuck into the air, great six-toed brutes fixing you with a feral slit-eyed stare. Everywhere ears twitching, twitching, as the armor plate expanding in the heat gave off piercing little pings. Cat invasion of the mind. Cat tribes running wild. And one big pregnant female comes racing through weeds to pounce between the paws of a marble dog crouching on a grave and sharpens her claws against his beard of moss before she goes all silky, luxuriously squirming right under the dog's jaws and rolls over to expose her swollen belly. Picture her with gold hoop earrings and punked out nose ring like the cat goddess bast, bronze kittens at her feet, the crowd drinking wildly, women lifting up their skirts as she floats down the Nile, a sistrum jangling in her paw. 
then come back out of it and sniff her ointments, lady of flame, eye of raw. Through the yard, the tanks come gunning, charioteers laughing, goggles smeared with dust and sun, scattering the toms slinking along the blast wall, holding back the waves from washing away white crosses on the graves, the motors roaring through the afternoon like a cat fuck yowling on and on. The gun turrets revolving and the cat's eyes swivel and shine, steel treads clanking, sending the cats flying in an exodus through brown brittle grass, the stalks barely rippling as they pass. After the last car bomb killed three soldiers, the army website labeled them martyrs. Four civilians killed at checkpoints, three on the airport road, a young woman blown up by a grenade. Facts and more facts. Until the dead ones climb up out of the graves, gashes on faces or faces blown away like sandblasted stone that in the boarded-up museum's fractured English leaves the onlooker riddled and shaken, nothing but a pathetic gaping. And then I remember the ancient archers frozen between reverence and necessity, who stare down the enemy, barbarians, as it's told, who nailed sacred cats to their shields, knowing their foes, outraged in their piety, would throw down their bows and wail like kittens. Different kind of war. Um, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a recovering high school football player, and um, I have a twin brother, and my twin brother and I uh, were linemen, which means you get to smash into people within the rules, <laughs> which is basically what football is. Uh, <laughs> exactly. Uh, or sex. Exactly. More fun that way. Yeah, I discovered that later. <laughs> and... Um, Anyway, the coach called us out once and said, I want you boys to do a drill in front of the rest of the team. And then he blew the whistle, and then he didn't blow the whistle for another 90 seconds. That's a long time to smash into your twin brother. And then uh, the only other thing about this poem, uh, anybody here remember Joe Pine? Joe Pine was the Ur talk show host. I, I watched him in uh, uh, L.A. He had really... His, his whole mode was to invite somebody on. Some guy had written a book called How to Get Rich, and the first thing he would say was, well, if you're so rich, how come you need to be on my show? And it would go downhill from there. And um, there was a very famous exchange, I don't know if it's true or not, that happened between him and Frank Zappa. He had Zappa on the show once. And um, Joe Pine had a wooden leg. He did. <laughs> Self-portrait with shoulder pads. Brother fighting brother and the loser driven out. My eyes were on Tim's eyes, off someplace, gone from his body. While under his jersey, the shoulder pads gleam brighter. Masculine yoke we both labor under, determined not to get knocked flat.
Smashing and smashing into each other, helmets blankly ringing to the whole team screaming in time to the drill, Timmy, hit Tommy, Tommy, hit Timmy. Until exhausted, we fall to our knees and still coach refuses to blow the whistle so that we, on our knees, keep ramming into each other, implacable, servile, our hearts too violent, not to play inside the rules. How we envied the hippies on the Joe Pine show, Pine sneering to Frank Zappa, so I guess your long hair makes you a woman. Zappa shooting back, I guess your wooden leg makes you a table. <laughs> white as calcium, white as moons brought down into swamp water, white as a cataract on a blind eye, the pads fuse onto shoulder bones to make us walk that athletic walk of power and glory and terror of shame. So Tommy hitting Timmy and Timmy hitting Tommy takes over mind and body in the zone until coach blows the whistle and we get up off our knees and turn to avoid each other's faces. Years later, brought down by gun flash insights of assassination and business frowns of gangbangers dividing up junk while police held the line in riot masks and shields, I prayed for the cup to pass. But either way, I was an ass and had to carry my ass's load as far as an ass could. I'll just read two more poems. Um, I'll read that poem Hilton mentioned. Uh, for many years, I commuted to a job, and I stayed at a place called the Airport Economy Inn, which I absolutely loved. <coughs> Airport Economy Inn. No one speaking, nothing moving, except for the way the snow keeps falling. It's falling a kind of talking in the dark, while all across the valley we keep on sleeping and the separate conditions of our dreaming. His face all overgrown with concern. The newsman's mouth says whatever it's saying. Explosions going off, sound turned down, wind ripping at some twanging strip of metal. My friend's voice keeps murmuring in my head, murmuring she's stressed by going out with two minute once. Worrying they'll cross and she'll lose them both. She's starting to drink and smoke too much. Love's making her a liar, a chimney head, an alky. No one speaking, nothing moving but snow falling, falling. Bearing this motel with its takeout menu, new standard Bible, checkout time, 11 a.m., smiley face envelope to leave the maid a tip. Out in the hall, someone's pounding on the ice machine, one hand beating rhythm to fuck it, fuck it, fuck it, fuck it. Reveries of living here, year after year, scalloped walls, cottage cheese ceiling, plaster hands praying on the checkout counter, complimentary donuts hoarded in the ice bucket, do not disturb, credit card imprint, room 401's one of our regulars. Food, God, death, money, 
a TV clicker to push the world back and bring it closer, fantasies of lust so ridiculous and charmed you need two king beds and a mirrored ceiling. No one speaking, nothing moving, but for the screen lighting up with bombs falling through shifting fortunes of the soldier on a stretcher, body gone limp, lost in glare spilling off a Humvee's side that keeps hearse-like pace with the stretcher moving above the stretcher's shadow. No one speaking, nothing moving, my eyes close, I drift and doze, dissolving to jags, chunks, splinters, Flake piling on flake, erasing diamond-cut angles of every crystal swirling through streetlight before fading back into parking lot gloom as these lines stretch out and return to the margin as if nothing can stop this pattern from repeating, words telling it in irregular shifts of rhythm while the crawl keeps crawling at the bottom of the screen. And here's the last poem. Um, it's called Bedtime Story. And uh, anyway, there'll be two cats and one dog. <laughs> I have incredibly boring dreams. In my dreams, I'm thirsty. I go up to the sink, I get a glass of water, and I drink it. So I got the first line from a dream, so I decided to run with it. <clears throat> the infamy of America Bank is closing. My cat is the officer who closed it. All she did was walk across the table, jump down onto the floor, and the market crashed all the way to the underworld. And down there in those dark economies, among the hard cash of the dead, and the dense electrical crackle of her fur, my cat grows huge inside her purring, her eyes not the color of money, but of fog. And in that fog, see her pouncing on a soul, helpless as a vole, she grips in her jaws, its fur stinking in that acrid way of dead leaves, mud, oil-slicked gutters. The infamy of America Bank has been brought down by one swipe of her paw, by her irises dilating to the pupil's rim. And now she leaps back up from the underworld, stalks across my bed, butts her head against my head, yowling in that half-strangled way for me to take her prey until her jaws open and the soul bleeding crawls away. How slowly she retracts her claws, how slowly pushes them out, so I feel the lightest prick, cool from the night hunting on my cheek. And I feel myself falling asleep under her paw, all the nations of the earth falling asleep. Thank you. Terrific. Um, next person is Nikki Finney, and I'm just going to start with a little personal reminiscence. Um, 
The first evening I spent drinking with Nikki was in Northampton, Massachusetts, um, and this was a number of years ago, early fall night, and we looked up at the moon and mm. quoted from two poems we loved, mm. Derek Wolcott's Gene Reese and Marion Moore's Marriage. After that particular recitation, I was in love with a poet whose particular vision, as in Yeats is a vision, mm. has everything to do with the external world as it's affected by our ability to travel emotionally and intellectually in dis different spheres all at the same time. And that was Nikki Finney. In retrospect, our quoting Moore and Wolcott wasn't su such an unusual choice for either of us to make. Nikki and I share a love and a reality of um, strong women um, who have lived in a world that generally takes issue with who they are. Indeed, contemporary life is replete with a certain sadness. It teaches women, or more specifically, American women, how to cordon off those aspects of themselves, wit, critical distance, their bodies, that interrupt the flow of the status quo and their conversation. Standing at life's party, men who want to be just that, and the women who believe them, often ask singular women, you want to say what, and do what, and why exactly? Nikki throws these questions back at her presumed interlocutors, mouths that talk without thinking. During the two years we spent at Smith, I was often embarrassed to be in Nikki's presence. The reasons for this was manif were manifold. First, there was her beauty. It exposes all pretense with a glance. And then there were her poems, collected in three previous volumes, which articulated the dishonesty in the room at large. But I think the thing that embarrassed me most was that Nikki was becoming something else entirely at Smith, a new or different kind of writer than she had been before. At Smith, she was creating a new form, cinematic poems, movies starring women as diverse as Rosa Parks and Condoleezza Rice, all united by the poet's eye. Mm. Nikki was raw and making herself available to her own vulnerabilities and truths. This we ended up seeing in her National Book Award winning collection, Head Off Split. The book is filled with what Hemingway once called the true sentence, Nikki Finney. Men who give milk. Epigraph. Breast development occurs commonly and spontaneous lactation occasionally in men under conditions of starvation. Discover Magazine, February 1995. In Toronto, there is a man with Wole Soyinka hair walking one way. A giant garbage bag bobbles in his arms. Now and then he looks another way, behind where another bag sits. He does not turn for it, not then. Instead, he pays attention to his future, walking all the way ahead. Down the street he goes tipping, a tightrope walker's agility. His bag, as bulbous as a giant's eye, cannot help him see. People with steaming cups and toasted breads push to not be in his way. His whole wide world 
is on the move. I keep one eye on him and his moving bag. The other eye is kept on the bag of his corner past. He reaches the end of the street, sits the bag in his arms down on the corner, gentles it as if it is a sack of the last time he heard the high yellow and coral orange of his mother's laugh before when his world had a lock, a key, a ceiling, a proper place for her to cup his lion-eyed face. As he leaves, he pats the bag on its belly, U-turns, walks two blocks back to the other bag, squats, picks that bag up, turns forward, again, once again, walking, walking. He, his walk is strong as if he has children, three, one wife to love until the end, a 30-year mortgage, a niggling boss, keep your shiny quarters, his feet sing out to the bread pushers. He does not stop at the first corner or the second corner with his first bag. He walks beyond into his future to the third corner where he sits the bag in his arms, the bag of his dreams, down. He settles his hand on this bag's spine as if it is that day in the country with his father when it was about to rain. This is how to shift and glide, the old man says. The old four-speed truck lurches like a bullfrog. Two hours of repeat instruction, and the old man finally reaches for the boy's temple. His hand, an onyx butterfly, landing on a purple bush, it both fears and fancies. This is the first time his father has ever touched him. The boy's able parking between two old oaks, laying down the sure, smooth tracks of the man-to-be. The walking man, with hair like Wole Soyinka, stands and turns away from this noonday flash of the ephemeral. He goes back for the sunshine bag that is fat with his laughing mother, who is always reaching, even now, for his browning and walking face. He walks it to the corner, beyond the bag spilling with his finally satisfied father and his satisfied father's finally soaring butterflies. This picking up and putting down, this serpentine stepping goes on until the sun gives up, raises its red-orange hand, going to work now in some other hemisphere. All day, all week, the pendant, then crescent, then waning whole winter moon pours. With every step, his feet stitch, then unbraid, the woolly strings of his heart keep moving. His two bags never meet on the same corner. Everything now out of his reach is never out of his arms for long. In Toronto, a man zigzags his way across Canada. In Canada, a black man stitches himself back to earth. I was in the theater watching the March of the Penguins. And I had a flash of a moment with my mother that became this poem called Penguin Mullet Bread. She pulls white oily meat of mullet off the long sharp bones of spine. The bones prick, she never once says ouch. 
I watch her fingers, seven inches away, my eyes are two glossy olives glued to the delicate woman's mouth. It is summer. Behind her, the white curtains she has made move like seagrass. I am camera. She is movie. She bites, then rolls, placing plump, soft chunks of fish into the side of her mouth. Her eyes grow big from what she tastes. I study her mouth, not her eyes. She chews slowly, never showing what's there. Her tongue twists and falls. My dinner moves in slow white fish animation. She coos like a woman who can taste any flavor in the world. A woman who can hula hoop in her own mouth. My hand rises. My fingers reach, fall short, then fall again. I want to say, Mama, pull the flesh from the throat, not the belly. The meat there has more juice than the meat around the fins. But she is the mama. I have no baby patois for what little I know of watery things. I have only 17 months of new desire and only two ways of showing it. It's too soon to tell her how much I miss my private swimming hole that by the size six looks of her has all but dried up. She chews down on the flesh of the fish, packs it around good until it is a perfect caramel mush. Catching some of the juice that falls with her longest finger there at the corner of her mouth, she pushes all of the sweet flesh back inside. Once or twice, she pulls out a hat pin-sized bone hiding in the waves of tender meat. Only then does she wear her eureka smile. Holding it up in the air to show my wishful eyes rise. Her long hand is circled in light. My body shifts into question mark, grateful. My newish eyes lift over and beyond the white curtains that all visitors believe are store-bought. This, she says, is why you have a mama. Her empire backbone finally speaks. This is why you must never talk back to me. Why you must love, honor, obey. My job, her toes pas de deux, is to feed and tell you the stories and keep you away from sharp things that might slip into your throat and never completely disappear. Her eyes plie into the slinky circles of her mouth. The sweet flesh is finally ground. Salt and snapper, spit and meal are a fine pate. She reaches her long brown fingers deep inside her jaw. Our hinged mouths open, mine prematurely. My fists are flying fleshy verbs in the apple air of her kitchen, bald in sweet anticipation. Chubby legs yoga extend into early orgasmic pose. My chin sets downward facing dog. My begging eyes and dark mauve lips close in slow around her fingers. The pounded succulent fish and spit lands on the center of my tongue. I swell in my first chair ever, fed by the mother who relishes the story of turning her back and leaving me once 
to swim off a thousand miles, find food, fight off shimmering shark, then swim a thousand miles back just to drop her beak into mine. I am the lucky girl of the high chair. The clitoris is nine centimeters deep in the pelvis, most of it scrunched and hidden. New studies show the shy curl to be longer than the penis, but like Africa, the continent, it is never drawn to size. <laughs> Map makers and others who draw important things for a living do not want us to know this. In some females, the clitoris stretches unfurls eight inches with two to 3.5 inches shaft-free outside the body. The longest clitoris of record has been found in the blue whale. In water, desire can rise, honor sea levels, ignore landlocked cartographers. In water, desire refuses retreat. Cattails. One woman drives across five states just to see her. The woman being driven to has no idea anyone's headed her way. The driving woman crosses three bridges and seven lakes just to get to her door. She stops along the highway, wades into the soggy ground, cuts down coral-eyed cattails, carries them to her car as if they might be sherbet orange long-stemmed Confederate roses sheared for Sherman himself. For two days, she drives toward the woman in Kentucky, sleeping in rest areas with her seat lowered all the way back, doors locked. When she reaches the state line, it's misting. The tired pedal to the metal woman finally calls ahead. I'm here, she says. Who's this? The woman being driven to who has never checked her oil, asks. The driving woman reminds her of the recent writing workshop where they shared love for all things out of doors and lyrical. Come, have lunch with me, the driving woman invites. They eat spinach salads with different kinds of dressing. They talk about driving, the third thing they both love, and how fast clouds can change from state line to state line. The didn't know she was coming woman stares at she who has just arrived. She tries to read the mighty spinach leaves in her bowl, privately marveling at the driving woman's muscle spontaneity. She can hardly believe this almost stranger has made it across five states just to have lunch with her. She wonders where this mad driving woman will sleep tonight. She is of two driving minds, one convertible, one hardtop. The driving woman shows her pictures of her children, beautiful, the other does not say. Before long, words run out of petrol. The woman who is home but without pictures of her own announces she must go. The driving woman frets and flames, may I walk you to your car? They walk, the driver changes two lanes in third gear fast. The trunk opens. The Mario Andretti look-alike fills the other woman's arms with sable-sheared cattails, five feet high 
and badly in need of sunlight and proudly stolen from across five states. The woman with no children of her own pulls their 20 pounds in close, resting them over her Peter Panning heart. Her lungs empty out, then fill, then fill again with the surge of birth and surprise. For two years, until their velvet bodies begin and end to fall to pieces, every time the driven two woman passes the bouquet of them there in the vase by the front door, she is reminded of what falling in love without permission smells like. Each time she reaches for her keys, she recalls what you must be willing to turn into for love. Spiny, oyster, mushroom, damson, salt marsh, cedar, creosote, new bud of pomegranate, Aegean sage blue sea, fig, blueberry, marigold, leaf fall, dusty miller, thief, of the night. Last poem. Left. Epigraph. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Rudyard Kipling, a counting out song. In land and sea tales for scouts and guides, 1923. The woman with cheerleading legs has been left for dead. She hot paces a roof four days, three nights. Her leaping fingers, helium arms, rise and fall, pointing, pulling at the weak old baby in the bassinet, pointing, pulling to the 82-year-old grandmother, fanning and raspy in the New Orleans Saints folding chair. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo. Three times a day, the helicopter flies by in a low crawl. The grandmother insists on not being helpless, so she waves a white handkerchief that she puts on and takes off her head toward the cameraman and the pilot who remembers well the art of his mirrored-eyed posture in his low-flying helicopter. Bong Son, Dong Ha, Ple Ku, Chu Lai. He makes a slow Viet Cong dip and dive, a move known in rescue as the observation pass. The roof is surrounded by broken levee water. The people are dark, but not broken, starving, abandoned, dehydrated, brown and cumulus, but not broken. The 400-year-old anniversary of observation begins again. Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, ketcha. The woman with pom-pom legs waves her uneven homemade sign. It reads, please help, please. And even if the E has been left off of the please, do you know simply by looking at her that it has been left off because she can't spell and therefore is not worth saving? Or was it because the water was rising so fast there wasn't time? Eeny, meeny, miny, mo, ketcha. The low-flying helicopter does not know the answer. It catches all of this on patriotic tape, but does not land and does not drop dictionary or ladder. Regulations require an E be at the end of any pleas before any national response can be taken. Therefore, 
it takes four days before the National Council of Observers will consider dropping one bottle of water or one case of dehydrated baby formula on the roof where the E has rolled off into the flood, but obviously not splashed loud enough. Where four days later, not the mother, not the baby girl, but the determined hanky waver whom they were both named for has now been covered up with a green plastic window awning pushed to the side right where the missing E was last seen. My mother said to pick the very best one. What else would you call it, Mr. Every Child Left Behind? Anyone you know ever left off or put on an E by mistake? Potato, potato. In the future, observation helicopters will leave the well-observed south and fly in Kanye West was finally right formation. They will arrive over burning San Diego. The fires there will be put out so well. The people there will wait in a civilized manner. They will receive foie gras and free massage for all their trouble while their houses don't flood but instead burn calmly to the ground. The grandmothers were right about everything. People who outlived bullwhips and Bull Connor, historically afraid of water and routinely fed to crocodiles, left in the sun on the sticky tar heat of roofs to roast like pigs, surrounded by 40 feet of churning water in the summer of 2005, while the richest country in the world played the old observation game, studied the situation, wondered by committee what to do, counted in private by long historical division, speculated whether or not some people are surely born ready, accustomed to flood, famine, fear. My mother said to pick the very best one and you are not it. After all, it was only Poe New Orleans, old bastard city of funny spellers, non-swimmers with squeeze box accordion, accents, who would be left alive to care.